Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Okay, uh, today we're continuing on this study in the book of Hebrews, and you know that by now, as you've been journeying with me through the book of Hebrews, that the audience that this author was writing to, they were feeling different and marginalized, outcast because of their Christianity. In a different way than you and I might feel it today, they were feeling it because they were Jews from a Hebrew Jewish background and culture that by and large at the time of Christ had rejected Christ. You know, many of them had received the Lord, but many of them, many more of them had rejected Christ. So there they are in their Jewish culture with Jewish customs, but they've embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as the Christ. And this was leading them to become outcast in in their society, culture, and family, you know, environments that they grew up in. So the writer taught them, hey, Jesus is better than anything, anyone out there. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the greatest priest. He's better than Moses. He's better than the sacrificial system. All that stuff that you used to partake of, Jesus is better than all of that. But for you to be able to continue in that knowledge and live well in life, you're going to need to do a few things. One of them being you must live by faith. You can't walk by sight. You've got to live by faith. You've got to really trust the Lord in life. And as I've been praying through this chapter, we've obviously slowed down a little bit here in chapter 11, and I hope you'll forgive me that, and I hope you've enjoyed kind of thinking about each of these characters in a slower kind of way. But as we've gone through Hebrews chapter 11, my prayer for you is not just, and for myself, is not just that we would understand more about faith, But my prayer is twofold, that we would believe that God is trustworthy and worthy of placing our faith and our trust in for everyday life and living. And then secondarily, not just that we would know that, oh, he's so trustworthy, I should place my faith and trust in him, but that we would more and more, ever increasingly, live lives of faith, where we step out in obedience to him and watch the wonderful things that he does as a result. So, so far here in chapter 11, we've looked at a bunch of different characters that the author has brought up. We started with Abel, the son of uh, Adam and Eve. We saw Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. Uh, But after Moses was the generation that crossed the Red Sea. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go all the way into chapter 12, verse 2, So the first three, we're going to kind of touch more briefly. So let's read verse 29 to 31 together. It says, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, This is our third instance of faith here. By faith, Rahab, verse 31, the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, what I want to say about faith here is I want to point out in these three stories, the Red Sea and over the city of Jericho and then part of the Jericho victory, Rahab, 
is that faith accesses victory from God. Faith accesses victory from God. I mean, they had victory there over the Egyptian army. They had victory over the city of Jericho. And then Rahab, of course, received part of the Israelite victory because she believed in the God of Israel rather than clinging to the gods that the people of Jericho clung to. So I'm going to talk about that in a moment, that faith accesses victory from God. But before I do, I just want to address a question that comes up whenever we're interacting with passages in the Bible that talk about God bringing, especially in the Old Testament era, but it's not exclusive to the Old Testament because you find it in the book of Revelation as well. But when God brings judgment upon a people group here on earth, and that's what you discover when you look at God defeating the Egyptians uh, in the Red Sea, and then secondly, with God uh, judging the Canaanites in uh, the land of Canaan. Uh, One answer to the question, why did God conquer the Egyptian and years later the Canaanites, is seemingly that both cultures, and again, they were separated by 40 years, so the Canaanites knew what God had done to the Egyptians for four decades, yet did not repent of the very same things that the Egyptians were doing, so their hearts were hardened. But in both cases, it seems that God had come to the conclusion that both of them were like a cancer killing not only the host, but going beyond the host into the world in which they live. Their ideas, their religion, their beliefs were like a cancer amongst humanity. And so God made a decision to bring his judgment upon them, not after their bodies expired and he judged them eternally, which he will do for all human flesh, but he decided to judge them in the here and now and bring that judgment in a very visible way through the plagues for the Egyptians, but through the nation of Israel itself in the land of Canaan. In other words, you could say it like this, I think, God decided that enough was enough. The Canaanites, especially as they sacrificed their children, as they practiced such abhorrent forms of evil, God made a decision. These people, they're they're going to produce, I think, more harm through their life than will happen through their death. And so God made a decision to reach out to them in judgment upon them. Their decision, their their heart against God was so firm that God decided to bring a judgment upon them. And I think in remembering something like that or in saying something like that, one thing we have to confess is that God's ways are not our ways. And that God is beyond, so often, our own thinking, our own minds. Paul said in Romans 11, verse 33, he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, I like to always frame that quotation in its proper place. It came at the end of Romans chapter 11. In other words, Paul didn't sit down and start writing to the Roman church, the church in Rome, and say to them, first verse, chapter one, I really got nothing to say about God because he's completely unknowable. No, he doesn't say that. He has chapter after chapter of things that God has revealed about himself to us. It's just that after 11 chapters talking about the gospel, talking about the destiny of the people of Israel, the remnant of Israel, and God's plan for the Gentile world, he comes to a place of saying, you know, there are certain things about God that are just hard for us to understand. 
He is beyond us and beyond our human thinking. And so often, like with the Canaanites and the Egyptians, we see things from our little blip on the timeline of human history, but God sees every possibility and every eventuality that could have come to pass, though didn't, because he made the decisions that he made. And I personally think that as he looked at the Egyptian and Canaanite cultures of that time, he saw a cancer that was spreading throughout his world. And through the judgment of these nations, he actually ultimately saved many more people than he judged in that moment because he saw what their evil was producing on the planet, on the earth. But the other thing to remember is that a day is coming when we enter into eternity that there is a song that we are going to sing. I always love quoting this song. It comes from Revelation chapter 16, verse 7. It's from eternity that God's people will sing, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. In other words, from that vantage point, once we get into glory, we're going to look at every decision that God made, every execution of his judgment that he released. And we will say, God, that was a good decision. Even things today that we chafe against or that our flesh might grate against, we will come into a place where we agree with what God thought rather than what we thought. And that day is coming in each one of our lives. So I just wanted to talk about that for a little bit. Maybe as we read those texts, you weren't asking those questions and you're like, Nate, why are you bringing this up? I wasn't even thinking about this. So let's get back to the subject that the author was thinking about because he wasn't thinking about any of those things. What he was thinking about was victory. Faith wins victory for God's people. And he talked about it, like I said, in the Red Sea, Jericho, and in Rahab's life. Now in the Red Sea, it says there in verse 31, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Now, you guys know this story, right? This is one of the famous stories of the Old Testament. Uh, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And through 10 plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians, the Egyptians and Pharaoh eventually said, get out of here. You guys need to leave. They gave them a bunch of money, gold, and precious possessions, uh, clothing, all the livestock, and said, just leave. Here's enough money so that you not only have to go on a little trip, and come back, but you could just leave permanently, you know, never return, never come back to this place. And so they departed. And as they began a journey, uh, they got to a place called the Red Sea. They were pinned up against it. The journey to the land of promise or the promised land, the land of Canaan, it should have taken a couple of months for the people of Israel to get there. So they get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh, it says in the book of Exodus, his heart was so hard that he changed his mind. If you read the story in Exodus, you're not surprised by this development. He changes his mind. And he raises up his army, and he begins to pursue the people of Israel. Now, they have a couple million people, which is impressive, but they have no army. They have no weapons. They have no chariots. And the Egyptian army, though decimated through the plagues, is still a far superior force than any the Israelites can muster. So they began coming up against the Israelites. And the Israelites hear the Egyptians are coming. And they began to freak out. Uh, they did not respond with faith. Instead, what they said to Moses was, they said, did you, this is what they said to their leader, did you lead us out in the wilderness to die? Is that, was that, Moses, was that your big plan? 
Was that, was that what you decided to do? You decided, I'm going to bring these people all the way out into the wilderness, and here's, oh, this is, this is so goody. This is what's going to happen. They're going to come and kill us all. They said, is that what you decided to do? So Moses, he just goes to God. You know, he prays. He's like, Lord, I don't know what to do. These people are complaining against me. they you know, saying all these things. What are we going to do? So he prays to God, and the Lord speaks to his heart. He says, stand still, this is from Exodus 14, he says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord that I will work for you today. This great wall of fire was then put around the camp, and Moses turned to the Red Sea, he stretched his arms and prayed, and the waters parted and the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea as on, it says, dry ground. Once they were through, the fire fell The Egyptians saw the Red Sea parted and attempted to do the same thing. The people of Israel, though, had faith as they went through the Red Sea. The Egyptians, all they had was a mindless courage. And when they went in, God judged them and swallowed up their army with those waters, making his judgment upon the Egyptians full and complete in that moment. Now, I remember a time in my life where I was passing through a particular trial that was just, I, it was so confusing, I could not see the way forward. Have you ever been there? You know, just something where you feel that you can't turn to the right, you can't turn to the left, you can't go backwards. There's no solution to the thing that you're in. That's what the people of Israel were in in that moment. Pinned up against the Red Sea, And actually, when you read Exodus chapter 14, there are a couple of other geographic markers that are given that seem to hint that around them, where they were pinned up against the Red Sea, were uh, uh, rugged cliffs and jagged rocks, and it would have been difficult for them to even escape if they wanted to, that they were uh, hemmed in by the natural environment that they were in. And as they prayed, as they cried out to God, there, I'm sure, would have been this thought about where they could go, or what they could do. But God made a way through their difficulty that completely and totally violated their imagination. Perhaps you've found yourself in that kind of place before God from time to time. Maybe you're in that moment where you're praying to God, and have you ever done this? You pray to the Lord and your prayers are less prayers, but more suggestions to God. You know, kind of like, Lord, I, I don't know, you know, I, I know that you're, you're um, infinite and I'm fine. I, don't know, I know that you see the end from the beginning. I know that you know all things, but it seems like there's a couple things that maybe you don't know. And I want to kind of give you some ideas some possibilities, some things that you could do to get me out of this situation that I'm in. But the Lord had an altogether surprising and delightful source of victory for them in that they weren't going to go around the Red Sea to the left. They weren't going to go around the Red Sea to the right. They didn't need to go backwards back into Egypt, but God was going to lead them through that body of water. And I remember being in that particular trial and praying and just saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to move forward. I don't know how to get around this thing that I'm in. And the Lord spoke to my heart those words that he spoke to Moses thousands of years ago. Stand still. In other words, don't. Don't go to the left. 
Don't go to the right, but stand still and watch. For this thing, stand still and watch the salvation of God. I'm going to open up a way through this thing, this trial that you could not previously envision. And sometimes the Lord will do that. And he'll put that on your heart to say, I need to believe the Lord and to not take matters into my own hands and try to figure this out, but I need to trust the Lord that he's going to get me through this thing. So that's one aspect of victorious faith. But the other comes there in Jericho. You saw it there in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. Now, some of you notice right away there that there's a gap between verse 30 and, or verse 29 and 30 in the sequence of what happened in the Old Testament. They went through the Red Sea, and then guess who the author of Hebrews doesn't mention? He doesn't mention those people that went through the Red Sea ever again because they didn't have faith in the Lord after that episode. They lost their trust in God, and they believed that the giants in the land of Canaan would ultimately consume and defeat them. And so they actually had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the adult generation died off and a new generation arose that Joshua, who replaced Moses, took into the promised land. And when they went in there, the first major opponent was embodied in Jericho. It was like there was no place for them to go without first dealing with Jericho. There were a lot of enemies inside of the land of Canaan, but the major enemy in this walled fortress of a city was this city called Jericho. And it was fascinating how God gave them the victory. What happened was they went through the flooded Jordan River that God miraculously opened up for them, and then God closed the river behind them. God caused the manna that they were eating every single day miraculously in the wilderness to cease. And so they were in a situation where they either moved forward or they just would die. I mean, there, there was no other option for them. Now, by that time, like I said, Joshua was in command in Israel. And it says in Joshua chapter 5 that a day came where Joshua went to the outskirts of Jericho. He was actually just gazing, setting his eyes upon it. I imagine him as the commander, as the leader, just sort of praying, thinking, strategizing, and wondering how in the world are we, without a trained army, without a bunch of cool weapons, how in the world are we going to defeat a fortress of a city like that? You know, they've built it like that to defend themselves against people like us. How in the world are we going to defeat it? And I imagine Joshua thinking and strategizing, and if he was anything like me, stressing. Just kind of worried, like, how is this going to work out? How are we going to do this? And, and taking a lot of the responsibility onto his own shoulders. I imagine him needing a massage, a shoulder massage, just getting all tense, thinking about how in the world are we going to defeat Jericho? Well, there in that moment, as he thought about it, it says in Joshua chapter 5 that the angel of the Lord appeared with his sword drawn. Joshua asked him the question. He said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the angel said, no. I'm not for you, I'm not for your adversaries, but as the commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua, realizing the presence of the Lord right in front of him, he took off his sandals, he began to worship, and he said, what does my Lord say to his servant? 
I imagine just all this stress, all this pressure, just rolling off of Joshua's back in this moment, just realizing it's not for me to win this victory. It's not for me and my armies to figure this whole thing out. It's for the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. He's the one who's gonna go before us. He's gonna win this victory. And then he said, what do you say to me? Your servant, I'm just your servant. I'm not the, I'm not the guy in charge. I respond to the guy in charge. What do you want? And then what unfolded was this wild plan from the Lord. He told Joshua, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take all the people and I want you to leave the camp in Gilgal and I want you to encircle the city of Jericho, march around it once a day for six full days in complete silence. Imagine how ominous that was, by the way. You know, there you are in Jericho. You're there, you know, just kind of watching, like, here they come. They're just moving slowly. This doesn't really seem like an attack formation. And they're quiet. They're not saying anything. And they just circle your city once. Second day, same thing. Third day, same thing. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And then God told Joshua, he said, and on the seventh day, circle it seven times, And at the end of the seventh time, tell the priests, not the warriors, to get out their trumpets, not their weapons, and blow their trumpets, and everybody will shout. And actually, if you read it in Joshua chapter 6, that's the end of the directions. It's just God said, and that's what's going to happen. And so they went out. And they did that very thing. And at the end, when they blew the trumpets and shouted, the walls of Jericho fell down and they recognized immediately, God has given us a miraculous victory over these people. Now, I always love to imagine what it was like for Joshua to announce this to the leaders that were under him in Israel. You know, like, hey, I was out there, I was kind of stressed, but this, you know, the angel of the Lord showed up and I asked him what he wanted me to do. And I got the plan. Oh, cool. You know, what is it? Like, we're going to build a catapult. You know, like, what are we going to do to defeat this city? And then telling them, you know, just this wild plan. But you see, faith that gives victory like this, sometimes it, it, it will give us victory through things at times. But there will also be times where in order for that victory to be accessed, you know, that God has for us, he's going to give us counterintuitive directions. Things that just require a lot of trust in him. Sometimes we know this for the Christian life, of course. Jesus invites us to lay down our lives. That's a very counterintuitive thing. It's not what we want to do or what our flesh wants to do. But he says, as you lay down your life, you're going to actually find your life. We believe that if we sacrifice, that we'll actually gain, we'll actually get as we lay down our lives. We believe that as we are poor in spirit, we will actually be rich in the kingdom of heaven. Or that as we live counterculturally, you know, it, it, in a way that's different from the worldliness that's around us, that we'll actually be able to tap into a life of great joy. So in one sense, you could say the whole Christian life is a counterintuitive experience. But on the other hand, there will just be unique times where the Lord asks you to live in an instant or a moment of faith, and he asks you to do things in a way that just don't make sense to the flesh. They just don't make sense to 
your own brain and the way that you would do it if God did not exist. But because he exists and because he's for you, the victory is there. Then he talks in verse 31 about Rahab. Now, Rahab was connected to the victory there in Jericho. She was, it says in verse 31, a prostitute. Now, what happened here was that when they came into, as they were coming into the promised land, Joshua wanted to spy out the land of Canaan. Now, he'd been a spy 40 years earlier for Moses. He'd been one of the 12 spies that Moses had sent into the promised land. You guys remember this story? Just nod your head, and I'll just keep moving. But in that story, you know, there were 10 spies who did not believe God and two who did. Joshua was one of the two who believed the Lord. So Joshua did not repeat Moses' model and send 12 spies in. He just sent two spies in. And I think he vetted those spies <laughs> big time. You know, like, are you men of faith? Do you believe God? Do you trust God? You know, all of that. And he sends these two, two guys in. They go into Jericho. They sneak in by stealth. And they're able to lodge in the house of this woman named Rahab. She's a prostitute. She's, you know, people are paying her for, you know, obviously sex, but also for lodging at times. And so that's what they did. They found refuge in her home. Now word got out that these two spies were there in her home. And the authorities came to Rahab's house and said, hey, give up these two men. But she covered for them. She said, no, they're already long gone. And they went that way. And she pointed out into the wilderness. And sure enough, they took a bunch of soldiers and they went and pursued these guys who had actually not left the city, but were hiding on her roof. And what she explained to them was, the dread of you, Israel, has been on us as you've been wandering out there in the wilderness. You know, we've known about you for the last 40 years. We know what God did for you in Egypt. We know what God is doing to us and what he's said about our gods that we're worshiping and all of that. So because of this fear that I have for, you, for, for your God, she said, can you have mercy on me? And so what they told her was, they said, if you don't tell anybody about us and if you hang a scarlet cord from your house, because her house was actually built into the city wall, they said, when we come to win the victory, and again, they didn't know how it was going to happen yet at that point, they said, we'll have mercy on you. God will have mercy on you. And that's exactly what Rahab did. She kept it to herself. She hung the scarlet cord. When the walls fell down, we assume that God preserved her little part of the wall, and she was saved, and she actually became adopted by the Israelite nation. She became one of them. So much so, in fact, that she entered into marriage with an Israelite man, and eventually their offspring uh, gave birth to David, who became the greatest king that Israel has ever seen. And you know the story. David's line became Jesus's line. And Matthew, when he writes his gospel, he starts out by giving the family tree of, of uh, Jesus. And he mentions mostly generations by the patriarchs or the men that were leading those generations. But he mentions four women in that list. And one of them was Rahab. So she entered into the, to the line of Christ because of her faith. What this shows us or what this helps us understand as we're thinking about faith that leads to victory is that faith can, can lead to victory from God for anybody. 
I mean, if God is willing to work with Rahab, I mean, it, the Bible goes out of its way to record Rahab the prostitute. And if God could work in her life, we're so encouraged because this means that there is no one that is beyond the grace of God. That God could reach into any human being's life who decides to live by faith. I remember, I think it was 16 or 17 years ago when Pastor Mike, you know, he had his radical conversion and then he was asked to start a Monday night meeting uh, for those that were struggling with drug and alcohol addiction and dependency. It started out as a real small, you know, kind of meeting, but it just really began to swell and build over the years. And it's still just a great, you know, ministry that meets every single Monday night. But I remember watching as a younger pastor, what was happening to our church during that time. And I don't know, as a young guy, I mean, I was just, you know, my early mid twenties, you know, at that point, but to me, it felt like we went from being a little like country clubbish as a church to just like Jesus unlocking this cool, like wild avenue or strain of his grace upon our church. And it just made the church better <laughs> as I was watching it, you know? And it was just so cool to just see, man, this is what the Lord does. There is no one that his cross, his gospel, his grace cannot help aid reach into their lives. And I think Rahab and her faith is a great example of that. All right, so there's the Red Sea, Jericho, and Rahab. But then the author goes on, let's read in verse 32, and he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Here the author does this cool thing. Basically what he's saying is, I'd like personally for Hebrews 11 to go on forever. <laughs> You know, I could just keep writing about all these Old Testament saints in sequence. He starts with a bunch of judges from the book of Judges, guys like Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. He gets into First and Second Samuel when he talks about David and uh, Samuel. And then he just goes into the rest of the Old Testament scripture when he talks about the prophets, more than likely Elijah and Elisha first as the fathers of the prophets, but then, of course, the entire prophetic realm that flowed after those men. But he just says, look, I don't have time to talk about each one of these guys and what their faith was like. And just to set your mind at ease, I know I also don't have time to talk about each one of these guys. Some of you are nervous right now. Like, is he going to do a faith study on each one of these characters? I'd love to, but we don't have time for that. But he says in verse 33, he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, that's what the judges and the kings did, obtained promises, you know, that God would give them victory at different moments, stopped the mouths of lions, that was, you remember Daniel in the lion's den, but also a couple other figures like Samson who killed lions. Verse 34, quenched the power of fire, remember Daniel's friends, they went through the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, escaped the edge of the sword like Elijah did when Jezebel was trying to persecute him and kill him, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. That describes many Old Testament stories. And then in verse 35, he says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Like 
the widow at Zarephath or the Shunammite that Elisha ministered to, and even Jesus in his earthly ministry, some of the things he did in bringing the dead of various women, their loved ones, back to life. Now, the thing I want you to see there from that little paragraph that I just read is that these are, very, uh, these are victorious kind of stories. L- look at the words there again. Words like conquered, enforced, obtained, stopped, quenched, escaped, made strong, became mighty, put to flight, and received their dead uh, back to life again. Don't you like all those words? Aren't those cool words? You know, thinking about what faith can do. Conquer, enforce, obtain, stop, quench, escape. I love all those words. That's what faith is able to do. But then he goes on in verse 35. In the middle of it, a little shift happens where he says some, and now he's got a whole other category of Old Testament saints. He says some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. In other words, this is stronger than just raising back to to human, earthly, fleshly, on earth today life, but they believed that though they would die, they'd have a future resurrection stronger than the life that is here today. Others, verse 36, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah is a good example of that kind of life. They were stoned, which is the kind of capital punishment that the Jewish people exercised, death by stoning. They were sawn in two. Tradition, not the Bible, but tradition says that that's how Isaiah the prophet died. They were killed with the sword. That's how Gentiles would bring capital punishment upon someone. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. This is how the prophets dress. So the, this is an, the idea is they were different. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So they were homeless, basically. They're living in dens, caves of the earth. David had to do this for a while when he fled from Saul, but the people during Saul's reign often had to do this as well. The Philistines were persecuting them and they had to live out in the wilderness. And all these, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they had not yet received Jesus, but we've received Jesus. They were not yet fully perfected because they were waiting for the full revelation that we've received in Jesus Christ. What I want you to see here is that faith, it's like the author is just saying, as he just kind of gives a synopsis of the rest of the Old Testament, he's just saying, look, faith for whatever situation you're in, if you're a believer, faith is the way forward for you. It might be the way forward in this real victorious, overcoming kind of way, Or it might be the way forward for you not to overcome, but when you're overcome. That's why he's talking about these people who suffered stoning and the sword and death. And the words here in this part of the paragraph are not words that are as attractive to us, like the conquering, enforced, obtained, stopped, quenched, escaped words. They're words like tortured, suffered, stoned, sawn, killed, 
went about destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and wandering about. Now, it's interesting because the author, what he's not trying to do is say, hey, so you should always choose that kind of life. He's not trying to guilt his audience into you know, living this kind of life. But what he is saying is, there's the chance, Hebrew Christians, that this kind of life is coming for you. And of course, we understand in the world that we're living in today that many believers are already, right now, forced to live that kind of life. I mean, we had a beautiful Easter. We gathered together at the fairgrounds and we're you know, outside and the sun was shining and there were flowers everywhere and we're singing and just enjoying Jesus and you know, just having a great day. But on the same day, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Sri Lanka were suffering, many of them to the point of death because of their Christianity. You see, faith doesn't mean, the author is saying, that we're always going to live this victorious life where the harm cannot touch us, but sometimes that the Lord will take us through the harm and he'll stand with us as we go through it, as we endure it. You see, a lot of people don't understand this. A lot of people think that hardship in Christianity should be avoided at all costs. But when you have a Christianity like that, you're weakened. You know, like when astronauts go into outer space for a long time and they come back to Earth, their bodies need to readjust to the pressures and the weight of gravity upon them. And a lot of people have a Christian faith that is like that astronaut returning to Earth with atrophied muscles. You know, just thinking like any form of suffering, it's, it's not right for me as a Christian to go through that because they fixate on the first half of this recap. Conquered, victorious, strong, overcoming. But our faith is also helpful to us when we are overcome. That's what the author wants his audience to understand. All right, we've looked at a lot of characters here. Like I said, from Abel all the way through into the promised land generation. But let's read verse 1 and 2 as we close out our study today and then have a time of eating communion together. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason I'm going into chapter 12 this morning is in just these first two verses is because this is his conclusion to everything he showed us in chapter 11. He says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I know that some people read that to mean that right now we have Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and all these guys in heaven looking at us, watching our lives today, hoping that like them, we choose a life of faith today. And I, I don't know about you, but it just feels a little creepy to me to think about it like that. I get that God you know, sees everything, knows everything, observes everything. Uh, but 
it seems like what the author is saying is not so much we have this cloud of witnesses they're watching us you know just kind of like hey no that was not a faith decision that was a faith decision i think it's more that if we think about it like this it's that we have a race to run today and maybe maybe imagine like an olympic relay race where you have the different racers who've gone before the the people that are on the last leg of the race Enoch or Abel took his baton and he passed it to Enoch and Enoch passed it to Noah and Noah passed it to Abraham and Abraham passed it to Sarah and Sarah passed it to uh, Isaac and you know on and on they ran their portion of the race and it's like now their race is finished There's no more faith run for Abraham, for instance. You know, he's with the Lord. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's not walking by faith anymore. There are no more tests of faith for Abraham, but there are tests of faith for us. And these guys are all looking at us, proverbially, so to speak, as witnesses. It's like they've run their portion of the race, but they're cheering for us, saying like, look, we did our part. We ran our leg of the race. Now you run your leg of the race. And as you run that race, run it by faith. And so the author says, if you're going to do this, if you're going to live that life of faith, then how many of you, after going through these five or six weeks looking at what faith is, how many of you would say, I I want to live more of a life of faith than I've ever lived before? I know I feel that way myself. And if you're saying that, then the question is, how can I do it? How can I have this strong faith? Well, here he says, you've got to, Run with endurance the race that's set before you. You've got to run this race that's set before you with endurance. You can't run Enoch's race or Abraham's race or anyone else's race. You have to run your own race. And you have to run it with total and complete endurance. Now, endurance is such a necessary component in the Christian life. Endurance is a thing that enables us to just keep on moving, to keep going. I read recently in a book by Dr. Tim Elmore where he he was kind of thinking about people who were born in 1990 and beyond, and he talked about different muscles that that people who were born in that era were going to need. He talked about the connection muscle, people skills, responsibility muscle, morals and ethics, the empathy muscle, compassion and perspective. For other people, the patience muscle, learning about delayed gratification. But a fifth one he talked about was the endurance muscle, tenacity. He said it's just it's an underdeveloped muscle in a lot of folks who are born after 1990. And I agree, it takes endurance, especially in our current world, to, to live the Christian life. So how can we do it? Well, he says here, you do it by laying aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Now, I don't mean through my illustrations to make myself sound like I'm some kind of epic endurance runner or something like that. I've bored you guys before with stories about running long distances and stuff like that. You know, I have you guys tell me sometimes like, I hate running even like a mile, you know, or something like that. But from time to time, I've done various endurance races, you know, that for me are really long and take a long time to complete. So I know a little bit about what it takes to, 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 to uh, compete or to complete, I should say, an endurance run. And when I first started running, one thing I learned was you have to dress the right way. There are certain things that you do not wear, cotton, 
<laughs> it's just bad. And there are certain you know, weights that you do not want to have attached to your body. You know, I'm not going to throw on a pair of jeans and boots and a button-up shirt and say, you know, I think I'm going to go run 15 miles like this. No, you, you want to dress in a certain way, and the author understands that. He says, look, there are certain things that in this life of faith, this endurance run, that will hold you back. He describes them in two ways. One way, he says, is weights like sin that clings so closely. So there are various sins that will be a weight that slow us down in this Christian life. I don't need to give a big exhaustive list. I want you to pray in your own life. Say, Lord, are there sins besetting me that are slowing me down in this Christian life? One major one that I think we're many of us very conscious of in the world and generation we live in is pornography. It can so slow us down in our progress and our walk with the Lord, just globbing onto us, and it takes a war to overcome. A fully orbed, total, complete war to attack through confession and accountability and uh, scripture and uh, you know getting your digital world dialed in and controlled. I mean, it takes a lot to just say, look, I want to win in this area of my life because I know that that sin will drag me down and disable me from the race that's in front of me. But the way that the author says it, notice it there, he talks about every weight and the sin which clings so closely, it seems like in his mind he has weights that are also non-sin weights. So things that are not in the sin category but are slowing down our lives in particular. And I want to take one minute to say this this morning, but there's one in particular that I'd like to just highlight for a second, not in a legalistic kind of way, but I just have a heart for humanity. And I think that a decade ago or so, when we began to think it was normal to carry around in our pockets these little screens and devices, I think we were totally unprepared for the onslaught of distraction that would come into our lives. And I've seen so many people who, because there's no control in this area of their lives, they are distracted and unable to concentrate on the people that God has put in their lives, the ministries that God has put in their lives. And in recent years, many of the companies that have produced devices like these, companies like Facebook, have admitted on the record, and scientific studies have shown, they've designed themselves to try to distract us to get us addicted to their services so that we're always returning because that's what increases their revenue. It takes a lot of discipline, is what I'm saying, to get to a place where you're not overly distracted by the bells and pings and whistles and things of today. And so I want to give you two services that I use that help me in both of the areas that I just mentioned to you. The first one is I've been a subscriber for the last 15 plus years to a service called Covenant Eyes, Covenant Eyes. It sits on your phone, it sits on your computers, and it helps to keep track of everywhere you've gone, and it is unbreakable. All right, so I want to encourage you with that one. But secondly, one that I also use to help me focus, it's called Freedom. This is what we need. We need freedom. I use this thing called freedom. It sits on my computers. It sits on all my devices. And I tell it when to shut down the internet on all my devices so that I can focus. One of my most 
precious possessions is my brain. It's one of your most precious possessions, your mind. And I consider myself as a person who has to have, be a good steward of my mind. And so I just know that my tendency when I wake up first thing in the morning, I want to check my email, I want to check Twitter, I want to text people, I want to surf the internet. That's what I want to do first thing in the morning. But for me, I know the battle is on. So I always set freedom to start at an ungodly hour early in the morning, way before I'll ever wake up, so that when I awake, my internet's already dead and it's time for me to just get after the things that the Lord has for me and for my Life. So I just wanted to encourage you with both of those things because I think that there are sins and weights that are slowing us down. Now let's wrap it up by looking at verse 2. He says, we're also helped by looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, for all these characters we've looked at, Jesus is the better version, right? I mean, Abel offered a sacrifice from the flock. Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself. Enoch walked with God every day of his life. So did Jesus, but Enoch did it until God took him home to be with him, his own personal ascension. Jesus ascended also, but he had to go through the suffering of death first. Noah built an ark that saved Anyone in his generation who was willing to be saved by it, and it saved his household. But Jesus constructed a better method of salvation in his cross that saves anyone in any direction in all of humanity in all of history. Abraham went out to a place he did not know where he was going, but Jesus knew full well the suffering that he was going out into in obedience to his father. So over and over again, as we look at these characters in Hebrews chapter 11, Jesus is the better version of them. And we sometimes just need to endure by getting our eyes on Jesus. You know, maybe you go through life, you have a hard time submitting to someone God's asked you to submit to. Think about Jesus and what he submitted himself to. Maybe it's Mother's Day for you and, you know, your kids are like in that stage of life where like you get no love for that, you know, and today's going to be a really hard work day. Even your kids are going to make messes for you trying to honor you that you're going to clean up. (laughs) And you're like, hey, where's that respect? You know, why can't every day be a little bit like this, you know, kind of thing, you know, and but think about the respect that Jesus got when he was on the cross. And people said, come down from the cross and save yourself. There are so many ways where as we think about Jesus, we are able to endure a little bit more. Oh, people are laughing at us in our culture and they disagree with the stance that Scripture takes and all of that. Oh, poor us. As Jesus went all the way to the cross, believing and confessing, staying true to what what his Father had shown him. So, Faith enables that endurance with him. So what I'm going to do now, because we've taken a little time to go through this passage, chapter 11, I believe that many of you, you want to increase in that life of faith. And so I'm going to lead a little prayer right now as the worship team comes up before we take communion, just asking God to help us to increasingly live that life of faith. If you're like me, you don't want to just leave these people on the pages of the Bible and go, oh, that was so cool, how they live by faith. I want to live by more faith than ever before. So I want to lead you in a prayer for that today. 
Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.